The Guardian. Before the games have even begun, Olympic athletes who arrived in Tokyo are feeling the heat of a Japanese summer. Beach volleyball players have found the sand too hot for their feet during practice, and as fears are mounting that this will be the hottest games for athletes on record, and the world is gearing up for COP26, The Guardian's global environment editor John Watts told us in the last episode of Science Weekly that extreme weather events are tied in to rising global temperatures. For sure, the fundamental cause is warming caused by greenhouse gases which are produced by cars, by cutting down forests, by industry and so forth. Um, The question is whether there are additional kind of cascading effects or tipping points that is making, you know, one problem uh, makes the other problem worse. And so the problem becomes non-linear. It's uncertain, but let's say scientists are more worried about this than they were a few weeks ago. So I wanted to look into what happens to our bodies in extreme heat. From our previous episode, we learnt about the very real consequences extreme heat has on human health and well-being. But it turns out there aren't actually too many studies about what happens to people when they're exposed to these situations, apart from in the world of sports science, which is what we'll be looking at today. When we talk about elite athletes, these are not your average individuals. I mean, these are individuals who are incredibly focused, incredibly determined and able voluntarily to push themselves into places where, you know, the average mortal wouldn't go. From The Guardian, I am Shivani Dave and this is Science Weekly. Mike Tipton is a professor of human and applied physiology from the University of Portsmouth. Firstly, could you talk me through a little bit of the focus of your research? Specifically, I'm from the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth and within the School of Sport, Health and Exercise Science. And we look at the physiological, psychophysiological and pathophysiological responses to extreme environments. So heat, cold, altitude, cold water. Um, And we look at the protection, preparation Uh, and prevention of illnesses in those environments. So it's a pretty broad remit. Yeah, and when you do uh, research with sports and human performance testing, um, athletes seem to be a good test subject for this area. Why is that? Probably with the work we do with the English Institute of Sport and with elite athletes is pretty focused in the heat because quite a lot of the major sporting events um, occur in a hot environment and in a you know cold can impact athletes but it tends to impact athletes like mountaineers with things like freezing and non-freezing cold injury but in terms of the in terms of events like you know soccer finals or the olympics then that tends to be much more summer related and heat related now um you know when we talk about elite athletes these are not your average individuals. I mean, these are individuals who are incredibly focused, incredibly determined and able voluntarily to push themselves into places where, you know, the average mortal wouldn't go. And that includes some of the um, heat illnesses. 
So would some of your findings be able to apply to regular people, you know, not the elite athletes, us mere mortals who might be doing labour-intensive jobs and so on? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. The area of um, sports science actually started as work physiology. Uh, And to this day, there are many more people exercising in the heat um, because of their work, their job, than because they're an elite athlete or even because they're involved in a, a, in a sporting activity. So although um, it maybe doesn't get quite the attention it once did, occupational physiology and people having to work in the heat um, you know, is important and they will suffer the same consequences as elite athletes if they overheat. The marathon and the race walking events during Tokyo 2020 will be moved to Japan's northernmost island because of worries about heat. And a similar thing's happening with the Qatar World Cup, where the tournament will actually take place in the wintertime now. What happens to the body when someone is in that intense, extreme heat? I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things to take into consideration. Firstly, you've got the heat that comes from the environment. So that's obviously particularly related to air temperature. It's related to humidity, the amount of water vapour in the environment, and it's related to the solar load, the heat that you're getting from the sun. But then the other source of heat is from your own metabolism. So if you're at rest, you're producing about the same amount of heat as a 60, 90 watt bulb. But that goes up to nearly um, two kilowatts when you're exercising hard. So that's the equivalent of a two-bar fire inside of you. So what athletes are able to do is produce lots of heat over a long period because they're so fit. So that represents an enormous challenge to both their ability to maintain their body temperature without it going out of control and then becoming you know, hypothermic and heat ill. Um, and it also puts a tremendous strain on their cardiovascular system because the body is now trying to send blood to the skin to cool, but also to the working muscles um, to keep them functioning. So, you know, you've, it, it's, it's a really large physiological challenge um, that, that exercising hard in the heat represents. And even though our bodies have ways of dealing with this overheating, including what Mike called behavioural thermoregulation, aka craving shade when you've been out in the sun for too long, part of his research looks at ways in which we can remedy the effects of heat exhaustion. Right, so, I mean, you're looking across the board at lots of potential um, innovations. So, you know, those innovations might include things like um, improving thermal comfort. They might look at uh, improving sweat secretion, um, reducing the amount of uh, the barrier to heat loss by clothing, making sure you maintain hydration, trying to make sure people's mechanical efficiency is high so that they don't generate any more heat than they need to when they exercise. You can increase heat tolerance. Um, you even can start talking about selecting people who are relatively good in the heat and also go at how they might pace an event to make sure that they don't overheat. So we're looking both at psychological as well as physiological interventions into the performance of people in the heat. Now, the most important intervention that you can come up with is heat acclimatization. So that's getting people to repeatedly expose themselves to heat um, 
And as they do that with time, with repeated exposures, um, they'll start to get better and better at losing heat. They'll produce more sweat. It'll have less salt in it. Their blood flow will improve. Their blood volume will increase so they can send blood to the skin and the muscles more efficiently. And at the same time, they'll feel more and more comfortable in the heat, which gives them more confidence. As you consider all of these things to try and optimize performance in the heat, it's very unlikely that you're going to do better in a very hot environment than you will in a cool environment. But what you're trying to do is minimize the, the decrement. So that's what happens with athletes. How can the kind of work you and your colleagues do translate to non-athletes? Will the physiological effects of extreme heat lead to the same kinds of results in regular people? Yes, no, there's, there's definitely a sort of um, a continuum that you go along. Um, and, you know, at the lower end of that is uh, muscle cramps and heat cramps and feeling fatigue and we- we- weakness and, you know, a, a, a rapid pulse and lightheadedness and fainting. And then it goes on to, you know, cessation of sweating and hot, dry skin. And you've gone then from the sort of fainting end of the spectrum through heat exhaustion to a medical emergency, which is heat stroke. But obviously, by testing people, we also learn about the responses to heat. We learn about how to mitigate the problems associated with heat. And a lot of those, you know, when I'm asked to give advice to the general population, I'm giving advice that has been taken in part from the work we've done with those elite athletes, like ways of cooling, putting your hands into cold water is a very effective way of cooling people. We developed that idea working with British Cycling, but it works just as good for people who've got hot gardening. Um, things like, you know, getting used to the heat, avoiding the heat by um, staying in the shade, avoiding solar load. All of these, they're very interactive in terms of their, their benefits. You've also mentioned that dehydration plays a big role in all of this. How important is access to clean drinking water when coming up against extreme heat? Well, um, once you get air temperature above your skin temperature then you're actually you'll actually start to gain heat from the environment through the roots that when it's colder you would normally lose it so that's radiation um, conduction and convection and therefore you're only left with one um, physical route by which you can keep the body cool and that's the evaporation of sweat and I emphasize the evaporation because it's not sufficient just to produce sweat Sweat that doesn't evaporate doesn't cool you because it's the actual evaporation of that sweat that is cooling. Now, what that means is, um, <clears throat> you know, if you're sweating heavily, a human sweating heavily can be producing two liters of sweat per hour. And that sweat is coming from body fluids. And so that has to be replenished. Otherwise, sweat diminishes and body temperature increases. That's really interesting Um, and makes me think I should definitely be drinking more water before I head on to the park. Recently, my colleagues did a brilliant report on sweltering cities around the world where temperatures are regularly hitting about 50 degrees Celsius. And in those countries, there were some people who managed to live quite comfortably. How much variation is there between individuals when it comes to this kind of stuff? And how much does acclimatization come into it? Um. Well, no, no, there's there's quite a lot of natural variation. Um, so if you go back to the very early work on um, gold mine workers tested in the 1950s, where there was over 42,000 um, gold mine workers tested for their heat tolerance, about 25% were naturally heat tolerant and about 15% are nat- naturally heat intolerant. 
So you've got an enormous individual variation. Um, and the really important thing about that is once you know what an individual's tolerance to heat is, you can customize the interventions to try and you know, maximize their adaptation to heat and therefore maintain their performance in the heat. So, yeah, I mean, as with an awful lot of human physiology, there's an enormous amount of individual variation. Some of that is just based on genetics, differences um, in, in the way people respond to heat, their cardiovascular system, their, their sweating and thermoregulatory system. And, and then quite a lot of the um, variation comes with things like the state of heat acclimatization. So with that in mind, how important is it to have the right infrastructure and resources to help prevent, you know, human cost of extreme heat? The first thing on this path um, and on this journey is to recognise the threat. And it's been kind of interesting in that for centuries, particularly so with elite athletes, people have considered, you know, and concerned themselves with things like you know, nutrition with things like training regimes, but actually temperature has taken a bit of a back seat. Um, and yet, you know, if you don't train properly, you won't perform as well. If you don't eat properly, you won't perform as well. If you don't get your thermal strategies right, you could die. And so, you know, it's not just, this is not just a performance related issue. This is a health related issue. So in the last episode, we heard that extreme weather events like extreme heat are on the rise and they look like they're going to continue to keep rising, meaning more of us will be living in higher temperatures. So what can people do? Well, I mean, on a day to day basis, um, you know, we're going to have to do things like, <clears throat> um, you know, understand the best ways of staying cool, understand, understand um, seek shade, avoid the sun, um, wear lightweight clothing, um, dehumidify the environment, maybe air condition the environment, uh, look at things like cooling by hand immersion. You know, we're, there's, there's lots of things you can do to avoid heat and to mitigate the impacts of heat. And, you know, you're going to have to keep a very close eye on children who we heat up very quickly, particularly in direct sunlight, and keep an, uh, an eye on the elderly, um, over 75-year-olds, are particularly badly affected by heat exposure. So what's going to happen is we're just going to have a consideration of heat just go higher and higher up the list of priorities and things we consider when we go, when we decide if we're going to go somewhere, what we're going to do in that environment, what's doable in terms of um, you know, occupational demands. It, it will be a matter of time before you know, we will have to start rearranging what we do and perhaps where we live and where we grow plants and where we, you know, put humans um, because of um, the environment that we've created for ourselves. That's really interesting. Thanks for all your time today, Mike. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think we covered quite a lot. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> we've gone from climate change through occupational physiology to an elite sport so yeah we have covered a lot you can find links to the guardian's coverage of extreme weather and the olympics of course in the podcast webpage. the games will also be something that we are looking into next week but if you've got any thoughts comments or feedback even episode ideas maybe then drop us a message at scienceweekly at theguardian.com 
Science Weekly will be back next week, but bye for now. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts.